please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Exodus thirty-three, twelve through 34, 9. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me while you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain, So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will be but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped, and he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. This is the word of God. Good morning, family of God. This is such an incredibly powerful passage of Scripture, and I feel desperately helpful, uh, desperately uh, in need. I don't feel desperately helpful. (laughs) What I feel is desperately in need for God's help this morning. Uh, so 
what, what I want to ask you to do, I know we just prayed for Lori and some exciting mission work that's happening overseas, but I want to ask you to bow with me one more time and just pray. I know every one of us here is bringing some burdens with us to church. Amen. But what we can do is put them at the feet of the cross. Say, Jesus, carry these burdens and help me to fix my eyes on you, to fix my attention on your word, because I need to hear from you this morning. Can we do that? Let's bow our heads. You can pray in your heart for a moment, and then I want to pray for you. Our Father in heaven, you are so good, so merciful. We thank you for Jesus, for the cross and resurrection of Jesus. We thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. And this morning, I'm hungering and thirsting for you. I long for your presence. I long to experience your presence myself, and I long for my friends, my sisters and brothers here to experience the joy of intimate fellowship with you. And for that, we desperately need your help. So I want to echo what Chauncey prayed a moment ago. Would you give us attentive minds? Would you give us the grace of focus? Lord, where we have wounds and distraction and sin in our lives, would you give us healing and forgiveness and help? I pray that each one of us would leave this place knowing your heart more deeply than we did when we got here. And yearning for fellowship with you and loving you more than when we got here. So help us. Forgive our sins. Fill us with your spirit. Minister to us in this time. For Christ's sake and in his name I pray. Amen. Well, in the latter half of Exodus chapter 33, we find Moses has reached a point of spiritual maturity that we should all aspire to reach ourselves. We want to get to the place where Moses is. Because in... The second half of Exodus 33, Moses has reached a point where he's basically his prayer is showing, I just want God. I just want God. God, I want you. I want to know you. I want to see your glory. I want to experience the joy of living life in your presence. I want your blessing. As a matter of fact, essentially what he's saying here is, God, I don't want the promised land if I don't get to have you with me in the promised land. I would rather languish in the dry wilderness enjoying your presence than go to a land flowing in milk and honey and miss out on you. The heart of Moses here echoes the heart of Asaph in Psalm 73. Verse 25 of that Psalm, Asaph cries out, Whom have I in heaven but you? And the earth has nothing I desire beside you. Paul echoes the same heart in Philippians, when in the first chapter he says, I don't know if I want to live longer or die, because if I live, I'm going to keep preaching the gospel. That'll be great. But if I die, I'm going to be with Jesus. And then in chapter three, he says, I want to know Christ. That's the great treasure. Everything else is like trash compared to the glory of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Moses has reached a place where he says, I just want to know God. Now, this isn't necessarily where Moses started. It's definitely not where the people of Israel started, and they really aren't there yet. Where he started was probably a lot more like where most of us started in our spiritual life, which was something like, God, I'm in big trouble. Help me. God, I'm in big trouble. Deliver me. And we experience God's help 
maybe his forgiveness. Maybe we just realized we were big sinners and we didn't want to go to hell. And we said, Jesus, forgive me. And he forgave us. Maybe we couldn't pay our bills and we cried out, Lord, help me. And did he help you pay your bills? Many times he helped us. And over time, as we experience the goodness and faithfulness of God, something starts to change in our hearts where it's not just like I want to get stuff from God. It's like I want God. I want God himself. Let me show this to you in the text. Why am I talking this way? Well, you can see it clearly, for example, in verse 15. And he said to him, that is, Moses prayed to God. If your presence will not go with me. Do not bring us up from here. Now, what's going on here? We've got to remember the context. God's people were slaves in Egypt. They cried out to God for deliverance. He delivered them. He defeated Pharaoh. They were set free. Glory to God. And then he parted the Red Sea. And they went into the wilderness. And he fed them, took care of them, gave them manna to eat, gave them water to drink. And then they rebelled against him. God established his covenant with the people. He said, I'll be your God. You will be my people. I have set my love on you and it will not depart from you. But keep covenant with me. Don't worship other gods. Don't make idols. And you remember, Moses comes down from the mountain and the people are having a immoral pagan worship service, bowing down to a golden statue, saying, this is the Lord your God that brought you out of Egypt. It was blasphemy. They rebelled. And then the holy justice of God burns and God says, I'm about to discipline this people and destroy them. And Moses, I'm going to let you, your descendants be the ones that will be my uh, carry on the covenant line. But Moses, prompted by the grace of God in his heart, prays and says, no, Lord, have mercy. Remember your promises. Have mercy on this people. And God shows them mercy and says, OK, I'm not going to destroy them. But now Moses, what he's praying about in verse 15 is, wait, I'm not sure. I heard you say, God, you're not going to destroy us. I think you mean you're going to let us go into the promised land. But I haven't heard you say, and I'll still be your God and you'll still be my people and you'll still enjoy my presence. And Moses is saying, "I, I, I would rather just die in the wilderness than go to the promised land without you, God. You're everything. You're everything. What Moses wants for himself is God. What Moses wants for the people he loves and cares about, the people of Israel, is God. Now, this could be already at the beginning of our study today, a sort of self-examination, self-knowledge mode. Time to look into our hearts. Just ask God to help you with this question. What is it that you long for the most for yourself? And ask him to help you with this question. What is it that you long for the most for the people you care about? If you got kids, what do you want for your kids? you got friends, if there's neighbors you really care about, what is it it that you want for them? You want them to have a good education? You want them to have blessed relationships? I want that stuff for the people I care about. Don't you want that stuff? That's good, but it's not enough. Because we can have great educations and great jobs and more or less healthy relationships. But if we don't have God, we have nothing. And if we have God, but none of that stuff, we have joy in your presence. There is fullness of joy, says Psalm 1611 at your right hand, are pleasures forevermore. Only God can eternally satisfy our souls. What Moses wants for himself is more of God. Let me show you these two things real quick for a second. This text, what does Moses want for himself? What does he want for the people he cares about? What he wants for himself is more of God. You see, Moses already enjoys fellowship with God. If you got your Bible, look back at 3311. That's not printed in your bulletins. The verse before where the quote in your bulletin starts. But in, in chapter 33, verse 11, 
the text says that Moses would go out to the tent of meeting and he would talk to God. And the text says God spoke to Moses face to face like a man speaks to his own friend. Moses is a friend of God. He enjoys intimate fellowship with God. He speaks to God. God speaks to him. This is an interpersonal relationship. But Moses wants more. He wants more. Now, we've we've tasted this if we've been blessed with really beautiful friendships or if we've been blessed to fall in love in a beautiful romantic relationship. You get to know somebody, you know them well. Maybe you know them better than anybody else, but don't you want to know them better? Y'all know about married people when they come back from their honeymoon, they're in their honeymoon stage and it's beautiful. We know that it's, you can just set the timer for how long it is till the next marriage crisis and we're going to have to put it all back together and talk about grace. But in this moment, they're experiencing deeper love and intimacy than they ever have before and they just can't get enough of each other. I need to spend more time with this person. I need to learn more about this person. They've got questions. That's just a little taste of what's going on in Moses' heart. God, I know you, but I want to know you more. I showed you already verse 15, but look with me at verse 18. Here's a prayer that you could pray, could cry from your heart every day. Moses said, please show me your glory. Please show me your glory. It's like David in Psalm 27. One thing have I asked of the Lord. This is what I long for. I want to dwell in God's tabernacle, gazing upon his beauty forever. Show me your glory. God's glory means a a little taste, a little perceptible vision of God's goodness. And Moses has seen that glory. Moses has seen God's justice and mercy and faithfulness as God brought the people out of slavery. Moses has experienced God's wisdom as he receives the word of God. Moses experienced God's faithful provision when God gives manna. But Moses wants more. Show me more of yourself. He hungers and thirsts for the presence of God. Because he knows only God can satisfy. What does Moses want for the people of Israel? Well, the people of Israel are are stiff-necked. They're sinful. They're stubborn. They're rebellious. God knows all that. Moses knows all that. But Moses knows about the people what they don't know about themselves. Namely, even if they get all the food they want and all the water they want and all the freedom they want and they get a good land where they live in a land flowing with milk and honey, if they don't have God, their souls will still be restless and unsatisfied. If your heart goes after anything else other than God seeking ultimate satisfaction, it it will not satisfy you. You'll be more and more empty. St. Augustine prayed it like this at the beginning of his confessions. He said this, God, you have made us for yourself and our souls are restless until they find their rest in you. You have made us for yourself. Some of us are looking for the ideal relationship to find peace. We're looking for the ideal job. Heaven help us. We might be looking for the ideal church. It ain't here. If you if you're looking for it um, in heaven, that's where that is. We're looking for something to satisfy. Guess what? There's only one thing that can satisfy. And his name is Jesus. Only God can satisfy. So. This is why Moses prays for the Israelites stuff. They maybe didn't know how to pray for themselves. Look at verse 16. He's crying out for the people of Israel. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? I and your people. Is it not you're going with us so that we are distinct and your people from every other people on the face of the earth? You see, Moses knows the whole identity of God's people. What makes them what they are, what makes them special is that they're God's people. 
They're set apart to enjoy God. Not only is that their identity, that's their vocation. They're supposed to be a light for all nations. Israel is supposed to be the people that know God so they can help all peoples know God. But how are they going to fulfill their purpose in the world unless they enjoy that relationship with God? Moses is saying, God, you're everything. Without you, this people has nothing. It comes out again in verse nine because of chapter 34, because he knows that this is a stubborn, sinful people and that the sin that they committed recently with the golden calf is not going to be their last sin. So he's praying, God, don't give up on this people. Stay our God. Let us be your people. Even when we rebel, keep drawing us back to yourself. Verse nine, chapter 34. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people. They're stubborn. Pardon our iniquity and our sin. Forgive us and take us for your inheritance. What Moses wants for himself, what he wants for people, is God. Because only God can satisfy it. You see, friends, what I hope the Lord will awaken your heart to experience today is this truth. That God is the deep good at the bottom of all of our desires. God is the deep good. All of our good desires, even all of our perverse desires. See, creation itself is good. And our perverse desires is when we're longing for something good in God's creation, but we're doing so in a messed up, perverted, disordered way. But there's something good down there. If we're living for our own glory, if we're living for sexual gratification, if we're living for money, there's some thirst for Glory or for intimacy or for love or for acceptance or for security that at bottom is a desire for God himself. But we're wasting our time going after imitations or we're wasting our time stopping halfway, receiving God's gifts that come from God to give us a taste of his goodness. But they're designed to draw us back to the source. For God himself, you have made us for yourself, O God, and our souls are restless Till they find their rest in you. What was Augustine saying? He's saying my soul and your soul is made for nothing less than the eternal joy, the eternal joy of relationship with Jesus Christ himself. Enjoying his presence, receiving his gifts. We're talking about living with him in a new creation with resurrection bodies and culture, all the goodness and beauty of culture brought to its consummation. But it's all worthless if Jesus isn't there. God is the best gift of heaven. Moses is saying, in effect, God, show me your heart. Show me your heart. I want to know you. The beautiful thing is in this text, God says, yes. He says yes to both Moses's prayers. Yes, I will keep my people. I will be their God. They will be my people. I'm not giving up on them. Isn't it glorious that God doesn't give up on his stubborn people? But he's also saying, yes, Moses, I like your prayer. You prayed to me, I, I need, I've enjoyed your presence, but I want more. I'm going to give you more. You prayed, I've seen your glory, but I want to see more of your glory. I'm going to show you more. Doesn't that encourage you to ask for more vision of God this morning? That's my prayer. God, show us your glory. Let us leave here with a deeper understanding of God's goodness than we had when we got here. So there's this incredible scene. God takes Moses and he puts him in a little cleft in the rock on the side of a cliff. And God says to Moses, you can't see my face because if you see my face, you're going to die. But I'm going to cover you with my hand and I'm going to walk past and you can see my backside. And all sorts of Jewish and Christian scholars and pastors and teachers have always said, what is that about? 
What does that mean? What's going on there? Because the Bible says God is invisible, right? And yet here as elsewhere in Exodus and throughout the scriptures, we're having this thing called a theophany, which is where God is making his presence manifest, perceptible in some way. And the business about you can't see my face, but you can see my backside seems to be yet another way. Add to the list from the book of Exodus in which God is saying, uh, you are made to be satisfied with glimpses of my glory, to know me, to enjoy me forever. But in your finite creaturely capacity and especially in your sinfulness, you can't handle the fullness of who I am. It would break you. But instead, I'm going to give you a taste. I'm going to give you a little taste of the glory. And here's the goodness of of the hope of our salvation in Jesus Christ. Not only does do our sins get forgiven through the cross and resurrection of Jesus when we trust in him? But God is purifying our souls, and one day he's going to make our souls whole and perfect to such a degree that we're going to behold his beauty and glory in a way that if we saw it right now, it would break us. But then we'll have the capacity to drink it in and enjoy it forever. That's our hope. This theophany happens. Moses sees something overwhelming. But the focus of the text is not on what he sees, it's what he hears. And I want you to get something here. Moses asks to see God's glory. I want to see your glory more than what I've seen it yet. And the response of God is not to show off his omnipotence, to show how powerful he is by whatever, doing some big signs. He doesn't put on a fireworks display. Instead, he speaks and what he says is, paraphrase here, I'm really kind. I'm just and I'm compassionate. If you want to know the glory of God, I mean, he is very powerful. Praise God, he's powerful. But the, the, the most glorious thing about God is his moral character. It's his personal attributes. God is not just some impressive life force. God is the personal God revealed to us in Jesus Christ. The God who loved us enough to go for the cross for us. He is just, he's merciful, he's gracious and compassionate. And when you know that, that gives you joy. That gives you strength to get you through the day. To get you through life as you're hoping for glory. So let's look at verses 6 and 7. And I just got to talk up this passage for you to try and encourage you to be super attentive right now and to keep studying it. Uh, Many people would argue, and I would agree, that verses 6 and 7 of chapter 34 is the heart of the book of Exodus. This is it. This is what Exodus is all about. Everything else in this book is describing God's actions and God's words. But it's really about God showing us who God is. This is about God's personal self-revelation. He wants us to know his heart. And what he wants us to know about is summarized in these verses. Not only that, but as you read through the rest of the Old Testament, these verses are quoted verbatim a bunch of times. In other parts of Scripture. Then when you get over to your New Testament, the New Testament is constantly drawing on these verses to describe to us what God is like. Who is the God who's revealed to us in Jesus Christ? Well, here he is. He's described right here. So this is a big deal. This is what Exodus is all about. More importantly, this is what life is all about. What we're seeing here is the character, the heart, the personal attributes, the moral attributes of God himself. This is important stuff. So let's read it. We'll read it through a couple of times and talk about what it means. Verse six, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord. Now, this word Lord shows up three times here. Whenever you see in your English translation of the Bible, the word Lord in all caps, that's Yahweh. 
The name of God we got back from Exodus chapter 3. It means I am who I am, or he is who he is. We'll talk more about that in a second, remember, but it says, The Lord, Yahweh, passed before Moses and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What God does here is first proclaim once again his name, Yahweh, and then he lists seven attributes of himself. We'll count them in a second. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. These seven attributes, God's moral character, are showing us the heart of God. What we're all about today is knowing the heart of God. Everybody say, knowing God's heart. What is he like? If I'm not just interested in God as a person, but I want to have a real relationship with the real personal God, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what is he like? And here God is telling us seven crucial things about himself. First, he repeats the name, Yahweh, Yahweh. As I mentioned a moment ago, We learn that name in Exodus chapter 3, and we get a glimpse of its meaning. God says, I am who I am. And then he tells the people to call him Yahweh, which means he who is, or he who will be. And what what that means, we talked about several times as we study Exodus, so I'm just going to review it right now. I'm not going to say much about it. But what God is saying is this, I am the self-sufficient one. I depend on nothing else for my existence, but everything depends on me. I depend on nothing else for my joy, but everything receives joy from me. I'm the eternal fountain of life, of energy, of love. All things depend on me. I need nothing. See, God gives everything. He is fullness of being. He's the fountain. He's the source of every good thing. That's what the name Yahweh means. But lest we get some idea that God's like some sort of abstract life force or principle of being and we don't know what that is and we can't relate to it now god is revealing more of his his moral character that shows us his heart and so he names these seven attributes let's go through real quickly and number them just so you can follow along with me the lord the lord a god and here's the list if you got your bible or your bulletin and a pen you might want to number these as we go make it easier to keep track one merciful that's the first attribute two gracious Three, slow to anger. You following along with me? Verse six, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in four, steadfast love. And five, faithfulness, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, abounding in faithfulness. Then he goes back to talk about the steadfast love idea, keeping steadfast love for thousands That means thousands of generations in context. And then the sixth attribute, forgiving. He's a forgiving God. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. And then the seventh attribute, this longer phrase, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. If we wanted to summarize that up with a word, we could use several words. We could talk about God's just judgment. We could talk about God's wrath. I'm going to talk about God's holy justice. That's the way I'm going to summarize it today. So the seven attributes. One, God is gracious. Excuse me, merciful. One, God is merciful. Two, he's gracious. 
Three, he's slow to anger. Four, abounding in steadfast love. Five, bounding in faithfulness. Six, forgiving. And seven, God's a God of holy justice. Now, as we talk about what those mean, first thing to acknowledge is that number seven exists with a certain sort of tension of the other six, doesn't it? The first six are all about how God is very kind and forgiving and treats us better than what we deserve. Don't you like that? But number seven says, um, but he by no means will clear the guilty. He's a God of holy justice. Don't think all this stuff about God's grace and mercy and forgiveness means that God is some sort of senile grandfather in the clouds who says, it's okay, kids, and pats us on the back and lets the world keep on going crazy. That is not the God of the Bible. This is a God who says no to evil. He's a God who says no to evil. He's a God of holy justice. Now, that might leave us asking the question, how do these two things fit together? How can it be gracious, merciful, forgiving, but then say, I'm not going to clear the guilty? Well, this text is concisely revealing to us what the whole story of Scripture demonstrates. Namely, God is patient with sinners. Isn't that good news? He's willing to forgive those who repent. Yet he will not ultimately make peace with evil in his creation. He's going to keep fighting against evil until his creation is made whole. God says no to every form of evil. He's committed to ushering in a world of peace and joy and wholeness and justice that's no longer marred by all the destructive forces of human and demonic evil that mess up life. And when we think about it, that's really good news. It would be scary if the all-powerful king of the universe was okay with evil persisting in the universe, wouldn't it? Aren't you glad we serve a God who's not going to allow child abuse to continue forever? Aren't you glad we have a God who's going to put an end to racism? He's going to put an end to poverty and injustice and oppression. No more ethnic cleansing. I mean, it's all the, the wounds. Aren't you glad... That we worship a God who's going to put an end to the persecution of Christians. So many of our brothers and sisters who are crying out for God's deliverance in many parts of the world where they're killed. And in the 21st century, most years we've had an average of at least 100,000 Christians being martyred for their faith in certain parts of the world. Aren't you glad we serve a God who looks at these fatherless kids all over our community with love and compassion and says, I'm not going to allow this nonsense to continue forever. He's a just God. He's a just God. But what we need to remember here is that this God of justice and mercy and grace is saying to all of us, I love you. I don't want you to have to experience the horrible consequences for your sin. If you want to know how bad God does not want you to have to experience that, just look at the cross of Jesus. Here's God dying in your place. God rising again so that by faith in Jesus, you can experience forgiveness. But he's saying this. Ultimately, God says, I love you. I want to forgive you. I want a relationship with you. You could never turn from evil on your own. You need my grace and I'm offering you that grace. But he still gives us this ability to choose. We can resist his grace or we cannot resist his grace. And if we choose to resist God's grace and persist in evil, there are horrible consequences. That's what this text is saying. He's a God of just. Now, we then have to ask the question, what does it mean in the last part of the verse? Doesn't this like bother you a little bit? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What does that mean? Well, one thing we might be afraid that it means, which it doesn't, 
it would be easy to interpret this way on the surface of it. It looks like it might be what God would be saying would be, I'm about to punish you for the bad stuff your grandparents did, even though you've repented and you're trying to walk with God. I mean, it sounds like that could be what God's saying. Anybody ever felt scared that way? Because you look back in your family tree and you see a whole lot of brokenness and you're really worried about that. Well, if if I heard that, um, first of all, I might start to think that's not fair. That's not just. But I would need to check that impulse because whatever my moral intuitions are, they're not as reliable as God's word. But God's word makes it clear that's what this not what this means. We, I, I got to take you to ex, uh, excuse me to Ezekiel for a second. Flip, flip in your Bible to Ezekiel, because you need to hear this, especially in this room. I know there's a lot of people who are coming from generations of brokenness. And I want you to know God is a God who breaks generational cycles. He's a God of mercy and grace who interrupts this. And I want you to go to Ezekiel 18. Here's what's happening in Ezekiel 18. The people of Israel are being rebuked by God for their sin. Discipline is coming. They're about to be sent into exile. All kinds of stuff is going down. And as they're being rebuked for their sin, some of them are starting to shake their fists at God. Say, God, we're mad at you because you're punishing us for stuff our grandparents did. They're mad at God for that. And look, look what happens. Ezekiel 18 verses 1 through 4. Says the word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Now, that proverb is a way of saying my great granddaddy ate some bad food and I've got stomachache, which is a it's a metaphor. It's saying my ancestors did bad stuff and now I'm suffering for it. God, that's not fair. That's the complaint. And God responds to this by saying what we read in verse three. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. What he means is if your father sinned, your father's going to face the consequences for it. If you sin, you're going to face the consequences. If you repent, you're going to be forgiven. And he goes on to explain that at length in the chapter. I don't have time to read the whole thing, but skip down to verse 14 with me if you've got your Bible. The prophet Ezekiel, God speaking, the prophet Ezekiel has been um, giving this scenario in which he describes somebody who is a big sinner and now his son or his grandson repents. And how is God going to deal with this? And here's what here's what we read. Now, suppose this man fathers a son who sees all the sins that his father has done. He sees and does not do likewise. So here's a son. His dad committed idolatry. His dad was an evil, unjust, wicked man, but he repents. What's going to happen? It describes his repentance in verses 15 and following. He does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife, does not oppress anyone, exacts no pledge, commits no robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment, withholds his hand from iniquity, taking no interest or profit, obeys my rules and walks in my statutes. He shall not die for his father's iniquity. He shall surely live. As for his father, because he has practiced extortion, robbed his brother and did what is not good among his people. Behold, he shall die for his iniquity. So in other words, Ezekiel 18 is saying to us, don't get Deuteronomy 34, 7 twisted. Don't misunderstand it. What we're not saying is that God is going to punish you, though you're repenting and trying to walk with God. He's going to punish you for things you're parents and grandparents and great grandparents did. But then we got to ask the question, what does it mean? 
What is it saying? It's still a difficult passage. And what what many Christian teachers have thought it means, I agree with. And I'm going to try and summarize it like this. I think what it's saying is this. God, in his wisdom and justice and goodness, has created a moral universe. This is a moral universe. And because this universe has the goodness and justice of God woven into its fabric, one of the things this means is that our choices for good, as well as our choices for evil, have ripple effects that spread out to touch a lot more people than ourselves. This is empirically verifiable, isn't it? We can get the sociologists to come in here and give us all sorts of stats, depressing stats, as well as some encouraging stats, which is if you choose good, that's going to bless a lot of people around you for generations. If you choose evil, that's going to hurt a lot of people around you for generations. One of the tragic ways that this happens is that my children and my grandchildren and great grandchildren are likely to imitate my example. That's good if I do good, but if it's tragic if I choose evil, like this verse is talking about, right? So if I live a generous life, that's going to bless a lot of people. But if I live a greedy life, that's going to hurt a lot of people. And one of the things it may do is that my children and my grandchildren, my great grandchildren are going to be a lot more likely to be greedy. And for because of that, face God's discipline for their own sin. So this is real talk right here. In a minute, we already seem like we're feeling the heaviness of this. Don't worry, we're about to go to the other six attributes. There's going to be a lot of grace, a lot of mercy. But in a minute, let me say this. What, what we're going to see is that God, in his wisdom and justice, rules the universe in such a way that if we choose evil, there's going to be ripple effects for generations. But if we choose good, there's blessings for, universe, uh, for generations. And the blessings are way stronger than the curse. He says, the, for those who disobey me, the effects for, to the third and fourth generation. But he says, I pour out steadfast love for a thousand generations. And now, I'm not to that attribute yet, but let me just give you a sneak peek. Here's what we're saying. God says no to evil in the universe. But the yes of God's grace is always stronger than the no of God's judgment. Such that if one person in this room chooses to repent from sin that has been dominating your family for generations and to trust in Jesus Christ, there can be ripple effects for thousands of generations after you. God's blessing is stronger than the curse. So verse or excuse me, attribute seven in verse seven is all about God's holy justice. Everybody say holy justice. And now let's go look at the other six attributes. We're going to look at the other side of this equation. I'm going to pick up the pace a little bit to go through these others, but I encourage you to spend time studying these six. First, God is merciful. Everybody say merciful. The Hebrew word for merciful here could also be rendered compassionate. When we call a person compassionate, a human person, what we mean is if other people are hurting, they feel their pain. They enter into the pain with them. They care for them and they do something about it. So what we're saying about God here is that if you're going through pain, if you're struggling, if you're going through difficulty, God cares about you more than you could possibly imagine. He's a God who cares about your pain. Not only does he care, but he does something about it. The mercy, the compassion of God means that when God sees you or any person hurting and in trouble, he cares about you. He hears your cry. He sees your struggle. His heart is broken for your pain and he's moved to action. We see this demonstrated in the life of Jesus, don't we? Wherever there's hurting people, Jesus, his heart is filled with compassion and he goes and does something about it. He helps them. 
Mercy is a particular manifestation of love. It's a particular manifestation of love. Mercy really is love in action as it responds to human misery. That's what mercy is. It's love in action as it responds to human misery. I care about you. I value you. I affirm that it's good that you exist. I treasure you to such a degree that when you're hurting, when you're miserable, I'm going to move into action to help you. If that's true of me, I've got a heart of mercy. And what the text is saying is God is a merciful God. Now, we know from our human experience that mercy, even in human relationships, is a wonderful thing. Anybody ever been in a horrible spot and somebody showed you mercy? It's a wonderful thing. I was thinking this morning of a story you probably got stories that are better than mine, but I thought of this one. When I was in seminary, um, this was probably eight years ago, I went to Chicago for seminary. And this one class I was taking was not taught in Deerfield. It was taught in South Chicago in this uh, neighborhood. I took pub- public transportation down to get to this church where the class was being taught in South Chicago. And uh, I got off at the wrong exit. It was some, I was supposed to get off at something street and I got off at something avenue. And so I got off at the wrong thing from public transportation, several miles from where I'm supposed to be. And I know this sounds crazy, but this was before John Mark had a smartphone. Okay, there was eight years ago. There were several people on the planet who still did not have a smartphone. And I was one of them. Uh, I had a little flip phone. The battery is probably dead on that, knowing me. So uh, I was walking around other pieces of information. It's Chicago in January, which means snow on the ground, fast wind, miserable um, and so, as a matter of fact, part of the reason I wanted to go in South Chicago is because I was studying with all these great pastors who had been doing inner city ministry. But this is a neighborhood which, like South Central L.A., I mean, those two places, South Chicago and South Central L.A., are two of the most violent places in North America. So there's shootings. It's actually a pretty dangerous place to be walking around. So I'm walking around for a long period of time, and I don't know what I'm, I'm kind of praying. I'm not feeling that freaked out. I don't know why. Maybe it was just the grace of God because I'm just basically wandering through a blizzard, having no idea where I'm going. I do not call Candace because she that would have been unkind to her to let her know about my situation at that moment. But I wander for a while and finally wander into a gas station. And by the time I walk in, I'm, I'm not kidding. It was literally like one of those situations where I'm like my eyelashes are like frozen and there's uh, my nose is all red like Rudolph. And I walk in clearly not from here. Don't know what I'm doing. And I'm like, hey, there's a church somewhere called New Life something with a seminary class. Does anybody know where it is? And there's a group of people sitting around talking. And this one dude, he was probably like late 20s, early 30s, big guy. He just looks over at me. He's like, man, come get in my truck. I'm going to find this place for you. (laughs) And so we go get in the truck. He drives around for a long time. We find the church. I have a wonderful time studying Old Testament theology with Willem Van Gimmer. And it was wonderful. Why do I tell that story? That dude saw me in a bad situation. He didn't know me. But he knew if I walk around, I'm probably going to freeze to death. If not, something else is going to happen to me. And he had enough compassion. He cared about me enough. I don't know what he was doing. He had, I assume, a plan for his day, which other than driving around trying to find some church, I don't even know what it is. But he took his time to drive me around. He moved him into action and he helped me. Anybody ever experienced mercy? Listen, mercy is beautiful in human relationships, but here's what we're saying about God. Not only does he care, but his mercy is much greater than any human mercy because he has the power to supply everything that we need to heal every wound and to recreate us from the inside out. Our God is merciful. Everybody say mercy. He's gracious. That's the next attribute. Everybody say grace. Grace is undeserved kindness. Theologians sometimes say unmerited favor. It's a kindness that bends down 
to help someone weaker. If you want to see a picture of grace, you could think of a disobedient, rebellious child who got caught doing something wrong. And then a loving parent gets down on a knee and says, what you did was wrong. But then he grabs the kid or she grabs the kid and hugs him and says, but I still love you. And I'm not going to stop loving you. That's grace. If you want the fullest picture of mercy and grace, all you got to do again is look at the same place where all God's attributes are revealed so beautifully. You look at the cross of Jesus Christ. Here we see a God who in mercy and grace was willing to not only take on human nature with its frailty and mortality, but to bear in his own flesh our sin, our guilt and our death so that we could be reconciled with God. Grace The concept of grace means, among other things, that God always treats his children better than what we deserve. One of the most foolish things we could do as Christians is to shake our fists at God and demand what we deserve. Bad idea. Because his grace means that he's already he's already always planning to treat us better than what we deserve. When we sin and God disciplines us out of love, trying to redirect us to get us back on course, his discipline is never as severe as what we deserve. If you read what the Bible says about God's rewards for obedience, the rewards are off the charts greater than what we deserve. Friends, I don't know how much time you've been meditating on the rewards that Jesus promises to his followers. But here's here's what the scripture teaches. It teaches that if little old sinful people like you and I, with all of our mixed motives, do the stuff that you're doing day to day, week to week. You're going into the school or the apartment complex or into your neighborhood, sharing the gospel, mentoring people, serving, trying to make disciples. You, with your little feeble steps out of obedience, Jesus promises that he's going to give you an eternal reward, crown of glory and inheritance and the new creation that will last for infinite eons. God always treats you better than you deserve. That's the grace of God. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's slow to anger. What does that mean? It means God delays his punishments in order to give people time to repent. He delays his punishments in order to give people time to repent. His holy justice will come. We talked about that. God says no to evil. He will not make peace with evil in his universe. He will wipe out all evil, but he waits patiently because he wants to give people time to turn from evil and be forgiven. Listen, as we live the Christian life and we see so much pain and evil all around us, one of the marks of the Christian is that we hunger and thirst for righteousness. Amen. I mean, we're longing. God, come set the world right. Come set the world right. I'm tired of watching kids suffer in the neighborhood. I'm tired of watching people grow for a while spiritually and then something hits them and knocks them out. Lord, come heal us. Come, Lord Jesus. That's what they're praying at the end of the book of Revelation. Come back soon. Come, Lord Jesus. But I just want you to think about this. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't come back to set the world right five minutes before you repented of your sin and trusted in him? I'm so glad. Jesus did not come back right before I heard the gospel and believed it and repented because then I would have got what I deserved instead of what his grace had purposed to give me. God is patient with us, which means while we are praying as we ought to come, Lord Jesus, come, Lord Jesus, return. We also are patient and waiting because we know God is giving us time and there's other people in our community that he loves and he's not going to come back. He's not going to come back until that every single one of his sheep have been gathered into the fold. There's people on the ends of the earth in some tribe somewhere 
in some nation distant from gospel witness right now. And some of you guys are going to go. You're going to be sent by the Holy Spirit to go tell those people about Jesus. And Jesus is waiting for them to come to know Christ because he wants them to know his mercy. He is slow to anger. This is also true, by the way, for the discipline God gives us in the Christian life. God delays his disciplines in order to give his children time to listen to words of correction. Here's some real talk right now. If God's telling you something you should change in your quiet time, better change that. Better change that. If your Christian friend comes and tells you you're wrong, I know you don't like it. Let's do a poll. Who likes to be told you're wrong? <laughs> That's cool, Santos. You're a wise man. Okay. Most of us don't. That's a wise man right there. Why don't we? Because we're prideful. But why does Santos and the wise man, according to Proverbs, why do, why do we love it? Because when we're told we're wrong, this is giving us an opportunity to be corrected by words before we get corrected by actions. Right. God delays his discipline so that we have time to repent. So next time your Christian brother and sister comes and corrects you, even if they don't do it perfectly, they probably won't. But even if they give you an imperfect, loving word of correction, hug them and say, thank you. This is much better than if I had persisted in that sin. He's slow to anger. Everybody say merciful, gracious, slow to anger. I really got to speed up now. Abounding in steadfast love. It's going to be hard for me because y'all know steadfast love. This is like one of my favorite words in the Bible. Chesed. Everybody say steadfast love again. Uh, loyal love, unchanging love. Unquenchable love, covenant love, unbreakable love. What we're saying is what Paul's saying in Romans 8. If you're in Christ, nothing can separate you from the love of God. His steadfast love never fails. We already talked about it, but he shows steadfast love to thousands of generations. We are still benefiting from God's blessing upon the faith of Abraham. That was a long time ago. We are still benefiting from God's blessing on the faith of David. We're still benefiting from God's blessing on the faith of Apostle Paul, who took the gospel to pagan Gentiles like us. Thank God that in the fourth and fifth and sixth centuries, people like Augustine of Canterbury and St. Patrick and St. Aidan and all these folks took the gospel to this distant, barely heard of it, pagan off the map of the known world place called the British Isles and preached the gospel to some crazy druid, whatever people in England and Scotland and Ireland so that the gospel could get to to them and then uh, spread all over the world as England became a sending hub for missions. Thank God in the 19th century in the modern missions movement, there were hundreds of missionaries going to places like sub-Saharan Africa. About 59 out of 60 of them would die from this mission uh, endeavor because for, for years, for decades, it was the mortality rate was that high because of disease and the danger of travel, all this kind of stuff. But those missionaries, with all their cultural blind spots and all their cultural imperialistic whatever, they had the gospel. And that seed took root so that decades later, indigenous leaders from Africa would spread the gospel so that now, as Western culture is going crazy, the, the global south is coming to Jesus. Glory to God. The faithfulness of a few fragile, imperfect saints can bear good fruit for a thousand generations. The text says he's faithful. That's the next one. Everybody say faithful. The word could be translated true. What we mean is that God is reliable. You can rely on God. You can depend upon God. He always keeps his word. He always acts in a way that beautifully expresses his perfect character. You don't have to worry about him being gracious today and not gracious tomorrow or just today and not just tomorrow. He's faithful. 
He's reliable. Now, without looking around, making eye contact with any of your friends or your spouse, can we just testify that people will let you down? People will let you down, but God never lets you down. Last one. Here we go. Number six. He's forgiving. He's a forgiving God. He forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. Here's the glorious good news of the gospel. Though God has holy justice, which is inexorable, he says no to evil. He will pour out his wrath on all evil, including those who reject his offer of grace, who reject the gospel, which is a tragedy that should break our hearts every day. The reality of the gospel is this for any of us, no matter how huge our sin might be. For any of us, if we simply believe on Jesus Christ, the son of God who died for us and rose again, the Bible says God will wipe our sight clean. He will forgive our sin. He will count us as if we have obeyed him just as faithfully as Jesus. He'll count us righteous and he'll welcome us and embrace us in the family of God. He's a forgiving God. He's merciful. He's gracious. Slow to anger, bounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin. But he's a God of holy justice who holds us accountable. Now, as we read through the book of Exodus, what we see is this is God's just putting this on display by his mercy. He brought the Israelites out of slavery In his holy justice. He punished Pharaoh for his hard hearted rebellion and oppression. In his holy justice, he disciplined Israel for their sin. But in his mercy and forgiveness, he forgave them after they repented. And his steadfast love, he fed them and gave them water, even when they grumbled against him. If you want to know what this looks like in perfect, we've already said it. What do we look to? Who do we look to? What's his name? Jesus is the image of the invisible God. On the cross, we see the depths of God's holy justice. God says no to evil. God says no to evil. But we see the depths of God's holy mercy that God himself bore the consequences of our sin so that we could be forgiven. And what I want to say to you, friends, as we're moving to a conclusion here is that This God of the Bible is the God of real life. If you'll just take him at his word, just seek his face daily, you'll find that this God is real. He's the God who hears your prayers when you're struggling in your family situation, when you're crying out for somebody you're trying to share the gospel with. This God hears you. You see, when we know his heart, stuff like reading our Bible and praying spiritual disciplines, they're not a chore. We're going to be like Moses. We're going to be waking up in the morning saying, God, show me your face. Show me your face. I want to see your glory. We're going to be people of prayer who pray because we know God hears us and treats us better than we deserve. The purpose of our lives, guys, is to know the heart of God now and for eternity. But I don't want you to think that that means That when we know the heart of God and we seek the face of God, that's sort of some sort of spiritual escape from living responsibly in the world. On the contrary, here's how this works. The more we see the goodness and glory and beauty of our Savior, the more we seek his face, the more we want to know him. And the more that relationship with him frees us to live responsibly in the world because we want to show the world what God's mercy and grace and justice look like. We want to show him. So we show his mercy. If there's people around us who are hurting, they're in a ditch like we were in a ditch. When Jesus found us, we get into the ditch with them. And so we could say this is what God is like. If there's injustice that's causing people around us to suffer, we say no and we stand up to it with hearts of humility. But with hearts of boldness saying we got to treat people with dignity because that's what God does for us. As we know God, we're compelled to share the good news of Christ. 
with the world to take responsibility. So now we're about to go to the Lord's table. And it's a perfect time to remind us that knowing God's heart is a gift. It's a gift. It's a gift of grace. We can never earn it. We don't deserve it. Jesus died on the cross for our sins, ultimately so that he could bring us to God. It's a gift of grace. So as we go to the Lord's Supper, I want you just to remember, what did, what, how far was God willing to go so that you could know his heart? The blood, the body of Christ. God the Son in the flesh. That's how far he was willing to go because he wanted relationship with you. Let that reality of his mercy and grace grip and refresh your heart today. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, I feel inadequate. I could stand up here and preach for hours and feel like I couldn't even begin to scratch the surface of the depth of what you said in so few words here. But I just pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to be our teacher. Awaken in all of our hearts a hunger and a thirst to know Jesus. And let your character compel us to go back into our world. Lord, we do not exist for ourselves. Christ Community Church doesn't exist for ourselves. There's hurting people all around us. God, give us your heart of mercy and grace and compassion and care for our community. As we go to the Lord's Supper now, remind us of what it costs you. And fill our hearts with faith, with hope in the fulfillment of your promises and with love for your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.